It was either a great time or a bad one, depending on who you were and who you listened to. The longest reigning and arguably most influential Fatimid Khalif, El Hakim, brought the highs and lows in Shiite relations with the rest of the world and raised Cairo to the leadership of the Muslim world. He was known as the Mad Khalif and blamed for persecutions that he may or may not have had anything to do with. He was so admired by some that they started a separate religion around him as being divine. So a very controversial figure. Well, whether Al-Hakim actually believed he was divine or not is still debated. But despite all these controversies, the power and glory of the Fatimid Caliphate, one of the great eras in Islamic history, reached its peak under the rule of the Mad Caliph Al-Hakim. And he is our subject today. So please stay tuned. probably never know what the Caliph al-Hakam was really like. He was a very controversial figure and the histories were all written by people with a particular bias one way or the other about him. He is painted either as a religious persecutor or literally a god or something in between. What we can talk about here is what happened during his reign. As modern scholars mostly agree, a lot of things were done in the name of the Caliph and what he personally thought might not have matched up with what was done in his name. But one thing's for sure, the reign of al-Hakim had some of the most extreme moments, both good and bad, in relations between the Shiite caliphate and the Sunni and non-Muslim populations. These changes are important, but they often overshadow the fact that the sciences, education, and literature flourished during his reign to an extent that Cairo rivaled Baghdad at its height and constituted one of the true golden ages of Islamic history. So who was this man? Well, he was the first caliph to actually be born in the new Fatimid capital of Cairo in the year 985. He succeeded his father at the age of 11 and he took the name Al-Hakam Bi-Amr Allah, which means the ruler by the command of God, just to dispel any doubts about his legitimacy. Now, you will hear his name pronounced both Al-Hakam and Al-Hakim because although the Arabic vowels are different and it's clear which one is which, when you transliterate this into English, write this in English letters, they both end up getting written the same way. And the name Al-Hakim is actually a much more common name uh, in Arabic. So you, I've even heard Egyptians refer to his mosque as the Mosque of Al-Hakim, even though his name was actually Al-Hakim. Realize they're talking about the same guy. Now he was the sixth Fatimid Caliph and therefore that made him the 16th Ismaili Imam. And as we said, the Ismaili Shia, even to this day, continue to trace a living lineage of Imams, and he was one of them. Well, Al-Hakam's life was mired in religious controversy from the very beginning. As we mentioned last time, the Fatimids were pretty easygoing about other religions, and they didn't pressure people to convert. That meant that at the time Al-Hakam was born, there were a lot of Christians and Jews in prominent positions throughout the empire. Uh, the previous caliph, Al-Aziz, had two consorts. Now notice by this time, uh, they didn't have wives, and that was the same with the Abbasid caliphate. They didn't have wives either because it just created a lot of problems with succession. So one of his two consorts was Muslim, and the other was a Byzantine Christian, who was so prominent that two of her brothers were patriarchs of the church. And Al-Hakim was accused of being the son of this Christian mother, although official history and what most scholars believe says that his mother was the Muslim one. Now, if you remember from last time, the Abbasids, who were the rivals of the Fatimids, 
tried to claim that the founder of the Fatimid dynasty was really the descendant of a Jewish blacksmith. So birther controversies existed way before our time, and you couldn't really show anybody the birth certificate back in those days. Now, this is very significant because Al-Hakam's father, Al-Aziz, had been particularly accommodating to non-Muslims. He had a lot of Christian viziers, which are, we said is essentially the position of prime minister, and he appointed a Jewish governor, and he had generally tolerant policies toward them. Uh, we have to kind of bear in mind that as being part of the Shiite minority, they were already at odds with the larger part of the Muslim community to begin with. So having empathy for Christians and Jews in the Arab world was something that they were probably more inclined to do. In any case, he got a lot of criticism for his treatment, uh, particularly of Christians, because his consort, the one we mentioned, who was basically like his wife, was a very proud Christian, and she never converted to Islam, and she made it very clear that she remained a proud Christian even though she was the wife of the Khalif, who is also the Imam. So you can see where this would be controversial. Also, his favorite daughter, a very important character in this story, her name was Sit al-Mulk, uh, she publicly considered herself to be half Muslim, half Christian. Now, this is a little bit of an issue if your father is the imam. But she was very powerful in the caliphate, and she was very clever. Remember, in the, in the palace at this time, it, everything depended on your alliances, your entourage, who was with you and who was in your faction. And despite the fact that she was the daughter of a consort and was never going to become khalifa herself, she had a lot of power, and she was really good at using it. Now, she pushed, very successfully, for Christian rights, and she was often at odds with her half-brother, who of course was Al-Hakim. Uh, and it's widely suspected that she had him killed at the age of 36. Now, in any case, we have to look at Al-Hakim's often harsh treatment of Christians, which is he's famed for has to be seen in this light, in the fact that he was trying to compensate for all these doubts people had about him. I mean, essentially, when he took power, he was already the leader of a minority sect, which was being criticized as illegitimate by the Abbasids, by the Sunnis, and then he's furthermore being accused of basically being half Christian or a closet Christian. And so... Uh, in trying to assert himself, if he was extremely harsh on the Christians, and he was at times, we have to look at it in that light. He was trying to erase any doubts. Well, if people thought al-Hakim was going to be easy to manipulate because he was only 11 years old when he took over, and they definitely did think that, they were going to find out differently. Uh, his sister, Sitt al-Mulk, was 15 years older than him. So she definitely uh, considered herself to be more powerful than him, and she had built up uh, a very strong base by the time he took over. Now, she actively lobbied to prevent him from coming to the throne, but she was outfoxed by El-Hakim's tutor, who was a eunuch named Barjawan, who effectively ran the empire himself until al-Hakam turned about 15 and started to take the reins himself. So this is the key to these dynastic struggles. There are really large entourages of power brokers behind people like al-Hakam and his sister. And so the fact that he takes over really has to deal with um, the, the power and influence and shrewdness of Barjawan, uh, this eunuch, over Sittamulk's uh, entourage. Anyway, Barjawan used the boy Khalif to cement his own power, and he did. Uh, but by the year 1000, the turn of the first millennium, Al-Hakim was only 15, but he got tired of being a puppet. He was going to be his own man. And this is really the story of his reign. We have to look at it this way. Not only are there all these doubts about his religious legitimacy and his loyalty, but he's got people who want to make a puppet out of him, and as we've seen, uh, in general, they've been very successful of making puppets out of caliphs. They've certainly done this to the Abbasids. So, 
he did what any uh, aspiring caliph would do. He conspired with some rival eunuchs and had Barjawan killed. And by that time, al-Hakim could take control himself. Now, during his reign, many officials would be killed off on his orders. Uh, just like he didn't like being the puppet of eunuchs, uh, he didn't like being anybody's puppet, he didn't like being criticized for being soft on non-Shias, he intended to prove himself as a very strong Imam Khalif. And whatever else you want to say about him, uh, he definitely did that. So really, the main issue throughout al-Hakim's rule was whether he focused his pressure more on the Sunnis or the Christians. Remember, they are both rivals to him. And throughout Fatimid history, uh, the two biggest rivals in the region were the Byzantine Empire, which is by this time limited mostly to Turkey, and the Abbasid Caliphate, which has shrunk a lot. And their respective powers and ambitions rose and fell over the years. So al-Hakam's main target is going to change as well. Uh, if the Abbasids are on the rise and they're being aggressive, then he's going to be more harsh on the Sunnis because the Abbasids essentially see themselves as the defender of them. Uh, if the Byzantines are on the rise, and they were at times. I mean, we tend to think of this as a sick, dying empire by the time of the, at least by the, the year 1000. But they had periods of resurgence when a new emperor would try and show his muscle. Well, at those times, the main rival to the Fatimids would become the Byzantines, and so Christians would end up feeling the, uh, the power, the effect of al-Hakim's attempt to assert himself. Well, you might wonder why Al-Hakam would have had a hard time picking a main target for religious pressure, and as, as a lot of people describe it, flat-out persecution. Well, European Christianity was on the rise. Remember, by this time, the worst of the Dark Ages uh, are over, and Europe is beginning to, to come out of that period. Actually, they're coming out very strong now, and we're only uh, less than a century before the Crusades are going to come in, and the Byzantines were growing in power. So we might look at this and say, well, the Muslim powers are going to join forces, uh, the, the Abbasids and the Fatimids. Well, if you said that, you would be wrong. And even during the height of the Crusader invasions, when the Crusaders were establishing kingdoms, the idea that the Sunni Abbasids and the Shia Fatimids were going to join forces in the name of Islam uh, just wasn't going to happen. So more often than not, we have examples of Fatimids making alliances with Crusaders against Abbasids and all the other combinations going on. The Abbasids, for their part, by this time were quite worried about the expansion of the Ismaili Shia, and they had good reason to be. Their empire was clearly in decline, and the Ismailis had been expanding rapidly for a century. I mean, we talked about it in the last episode, but the, the growth of the Ismailis, particularly the Fatimids, beginning from North Africa, was really impressive. And they were doing it largely through the Dawah, which was their preaching. And if you remember, the Ismaili Dawah was largely a, a secret kind of proselytizing. Uh, they would train these Da'is and they would go out, I mean, essentially into the Abbasid territory, but they would do it in, undercover. And if you remember, they were authorized to hide their true religious identity and their true purpose if they could secretly spread the faith. So when we hear stories about how uh, Christian missionaries worked in China and Russia during the height of the Cold War, it's something similar to this. So the Abbasids hit back. In the year 1011, the Khalif al-Qadr had his legal scholars issue the so-called Baghdad Manifesto which said that not only were the Fatimids not descended from Ali, which of course is the whole basis of legitimacy in the Shia, but from a Jewish blacksmith, and not even a good Jewish blacksmith, a person of the book, because if you remember, Islam allows the Christians and Jews who are 
good people of the book can go to heaven, but in fact, what they call a munafik. And this is a very negative term, but it's a term that appears in the Quran for enemies of the faith. These are people who actively weren't against, went out and worked against the message of Islam and against the Prophet. So they weren't holding back anything. I mean, they are really trying to uh, paint the Fatimids with a very negative brush. Moreover, it wasn't just Sunni scholars who signed this manifesto, but members of the Twelver Shia, which we know today is the largest branch of the Shia. So even we have Shia versus Shia maneuvering going on. So when we look at this conflict between the Abbasids and the Fatimids and call it a Sunni-Shia conflict, even that is not really uh, correct because we've got a large part of the Shia who are aligned with the Abbasids and who actually had very prominent positions in the Abbasid Empire, but they were definitely against the Ismailis, which meant against the Fatimids. Well, the fact that Ismailis to this day still trace their line of Imams through the Fatimid Caliphs, including Al Hakam it makes it clear that this strategy didn't work. I mean, obviously, they did not accept the fact that their ancestor was a monafic. But it does tell you why, for certain long periods of his rule, al-Hakim concentrated his persecution on the Sunnis, not the Christians. Well, the Abbasids were not the only problem, however. As we have described, the Abbasid Caliphate had largely disintegrated in part through many, many rebel groups throughout the empire. Uh, and as we've seen, this idea of really a unified Islam is really a, a Western imagining. I mean, from the very beginning, if we talk, even during the time of the prophet, uh, there were all sorts of factions, and this is very true at this time. So there were rival contenders to the Fatimids as well. One particularly troublesome group are the Karmartians, who were based in Bahrain and the east coast of modern Saudi Arabia. They were pseudo-Shiite. They combined Shiism with Persian mysticism. But they were very effective rebels, and they defied Abbasid attempts to crush them for a long time. At one point, they even sacked the city of Mecca, which is a big deal. So as Fatimid power was spreading into Arabia, and al-Hakam is trying to project himself, I mean, not just as the leader of the Ismailis, but as the genuine, legitimate leader of all Muslims. He had to deal with these people as well, and he did. And there were still the Kharijites, if you remember the original rebels who killed the Khalif Ali over 300 years earlier. Well, the Fatimids had fought them to get their first territory. They had fled into North Africa, and so they continued to fight them. So uh, the bottom line here, I don't think any reputable historian could claim that they could count how many different rebellions were going on. But yet even these were not the big split going on in the empire. This is one we've mentioned before, and that's the divide between the Turkish military and pretty much everybody else. So the Abbasids, as we've said, have relied on imported Turkish soldiers who eventually came to dominate the Caliphate. Uh, bottom line, anytime you import others or use a certain very small segment of your population to be your military, you can count on them taking over. Well, the Fatimids actually did the same thing. Now, if you remember from last episode, the Fatimids had come to power by allying with the Berbers, and specifically it was the Kutama Berbers who were along the Sahara frontier that really brought them to power. However, at the time of El Hakam, we're about a hundred years later into the Fatimid dynasty, uh, and now cities have been built, and the original love had kind of gone out of the relationship. And by this time, the descendants of the Kutama were demanding increasing power. In fact, some of the biggest internal struggles in the Fatimid Empire were between Berber versus Berber, the Kutama Berbers versus everybody else. And so the Fatimid Caliphs did what everybody else did when they had rebellions. They brought in Turkish military who were very mobile and, you know, pretty much the ideal mercenaries. So by the time of the reign of Al-Hakam, 
we have a big internal rivalry between Turkish Sunnis and these Berbers. Well, if you're familiar with history, you know the way this is headed. Eventually, the Turks are going to control all of the Middle East right up until World War I, which is way, way off. So, as we said about the Turks, they are originally outsiders, famed for their military skill, and particularly their mobility, the fact that they could go anywhere, because they were basically cavalry, they could go anywhere to suppress rebellions. So they are like the, the ultimate mercenaries. And they gain prominence in the Abbasid Empire basically by suppressing Shiite rebellions. So although they didn't come in with a religion, and they're not famed for religious studies or theologies, because of this war ethos, the fact that they're out fighting Shia rebels, they become zealously Sunni. And the Turks are going to lead what is known as the Sunni revival. So you can see another reason why al-Hakam is nervous about Sunnis. They are, right now, the Turkish Sunnis are a big force in his empire that he may or may not be able to control. And again, we wonder why would a, a caliph do something dumb like this when we see the effect that these mercenaries have. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the caliphs didn't really have power of their own. You only had power by winning over uh, certain factions within your empire. And so it's not like in a nation state like, say, America or France or Germany, when you put out a call based on uh, the, the nation, all Americans come and defend the flag. I mean, this is who you can get to join your side. So if you have these different Berber factions that are defying you and making demands, and you're basically only one person, you need to get a power base. Well, you hear that you can go out hire these outside mercenaries and they're really, really good. So that's what you do. Of course, anytime you hire mercenaries, they don't go away. So all this is to paint the correct picture here. We can look at the Fatimids as a huge empire, a powerful state that defeated many of its enemies, and that's true. And we can see that they've got a strong religious appeal with a living imam, khalif, and that they do really amazing things in terms of building cities and universities and libraries and tremendous architecture. So when you look at that, you might think this is a really stable empire. But internally, the caliph is sitting on all kinds of powder kegs. His own government, even his own family, is a mix of Christians and Shiites who are plotting against him. Uh, he's got power grabbing from the Berbers. He's using Turks to keep everybody in line, but they rebel and challenge him. The Abbasids are clearly out to get him, and the Christian empires are growing and trying to take back the Holy Land. And then the Berbers themselves, who are your power base, they're split into all kinds of warring groups. And the Turks, they have factions. They're scheming against each other. So if you're al-Hakim, I mean, you really don't have a moment of security. I don't think there's any point at which this guy really felt like he was in control. Um, if someone had woken him up on any night of his reign and told him there was a rebellion going on, I think he would believe it. And I just say this, this is important to understand when we talk about this guy just being insane and doing religious persecution because he was nuts, well, we have to look at the situation. Okay. Well, al-Hakim is mentioned a lot, particularly in Christian chronicles as the mad caliph. And there is certainly a lot of evidence for that. I mean, things did happen during his reign, which earned him the title, particularly considering the fact that up until his reign, uh, you know, treatment of Christians and Jews had been really tolerant. The big question, though, is whether he was the one who actually ordered these things. Is it because he was insane, or is it because the empire was in tremendous turmoil and the factions, the power brokers that were allied with him, wanted to crush their enemies and send a strong statement? Well, we will probably never know. But in any case, the relations between sects was very turbulent during this time. Scholars typically divide al-Hakam's reign into three periods, 
based on essentially who was getting the, the brunt of the persecution. So for the first 10 years, and he ruled for a total of 25, al-Hakim was particularly tough on the Sunnis, but he did put a lot of restrictions on Jews and Christians as well. Uh, for example, he instituted the ritual cursing of the first three caliphs. And remember, that's Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman during the prayers. Now, that sounds pretty harsh. And, of course, we know why this is. Because Shia believe that Ali should have been the first caliph. And he didn't get the job until number four. So Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman could be viewed as usurpers. But there's a big division and always has been a big controversy among Shia about whether we view these first three Rashidun caliphs as good Muslims who meant well and did the best they could but who really shouldn't have gotten the job, or as evil usurpers who plotted against Ali, who of course is the second greatest person after the Prophet Muhammad. Well, uh, whichever side you fall on this sort of determines what you think about what al-Hakim did. Uh, that sort of cursing of, of painting these first three caliphs as bad guys had gone out of style, pretty much. But, but al-Hakim brings it back, and by doing this, he is making a very strong statement on Sunni-Shia relations in his realm. He's showing that he is rigorously uh, Shia and anti-Sunni, anti really. Okay, uh, and as you might imagine, Muawiyah and the Umayyad caliphs were also subject to some very vicious ritual cursing. That's not such a big deal because the Abbasids hated them also. Okay, but it's easy to see. If you have a, an issue with the first three Rashidun caliphs, then you're really going to have a big-time problem with the Umayyads, who, in their view, essentially stole the leadership from Ali and his family. So although al-Hakam was pretty tough on the Sunnis, the Christians and Jews also felt his power as well. They placed a lot of restrictions on the Jews and Christians. For one thing, they had to wear distinctive markings. In this case, it was black. Uh, black belts and black turbans. And in the public baths, which I mean, people didn't have bathrooms in their home, they went to a public bath, and of course you didn't wear a turban in the bath, Jews had to wear bells around their necks, and the Christians had to wear iron crosses so everyone could see who they were even when you were naked. Now, of course, today, you know, making religious minorities wear identifying emblems uh, immediately reminds us of the Nazis. And so, I mean, we view that as something really, really horrible. But wearing markings was not that uncommon in the medieval age and in many cases it were the minorities themselves who did this particularly like the coptic christians have a tradition of tattooing themselves with a cross it's for their own purpose but in any case uh, al-hakim was doing this to identify them so that they couldn't sneak around a lot of al-hakim's rules were intended for everybody but they particularly affected the jews and christians for example, he outlawed the drinking of wine. Now, Muslims were not supposed to be drinking wine anyway, but Christians, as we know, use it in communion. I mean, not just to get drunk, but actually you know, drinking the bread and the wine. And so this was something that was um, very tough on them. He also made all women cover their faces in public. And so this was not something, uh, say, that they had been doing before. Well, in any case, these things were pretty mild when we compare it to the second phase, which lasted for about five years. In this case, al-Hakam ordered the churches and monasteries in Palestine destroyed. And this included the Church of the Sol Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which we know is the most holy spot for Christians. And Christian celebrations were prohibited, such as celebrating Easter, which is really the most important uh, remembrance in the Christian calendar. And large numbers of people were converted to Islam, probably under a great deal of pressure. And this is probably the thing he's most famous for, is the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. That's the evidence of how mad he was. 
Now, the last 10 years of his reign were marked by a loosening of restrictions on the Jews and Christians, and they were actually allowed to rebuild the destroyed temples and churches, and it was the Byzantines who actually paid for and engineered the rebuilding of a lot of these, including the Holy Sepulcher. And he returned to pressure on the Sunnis, but also other Shiite sects, the non-Ismailis. Now, what we don't know, of course, is how much of this was al-Hakam's subordinates, uh, particularly his religious leaders, his da'is, and how much was him being the mad caliph. As we said, there were tremendous power struggles between different factions in the realm. And we have to remember, one of the biggest rivals for power is his sister, who is, I mean, pretty much a proud Christian. And the Da'is, the Ismaili Da'is, had a lot of influence as well. So in any case, we don't know how much of this was them doing things in El-Hakam's name or using him as a rubber stamp or how much was him being crazy. It's a very common when you read large histories of Islam to hear that during the entire Fatimid period, relations with other religions were very good except for the period of al-Hakam's rule. His rule is seen as this big exception. Okay? Now, al-Hakam's persecutions, even such as they were, would probably have been forgotten. I mean, let's face it, he killed a lot of people, but when you're talking about 1000 AD, um, and there was a lot of killing going on, and having your enemies executed was unfortunately not so uncommon an event. But he probably would not have stood out in history if it were not for what has to be considered the strangest thing to happen during his rule. Now, it was during this time that the Druze religion developed. And that religion was based in large measure on the belief that al-Hakam was divine. Now, whether he actually agreed with this or not uh, has been debated and probably will never be solved. But whether you think he actually believed he was divine or not would have a lot to do with whether you think he was the mad caliph or not. Okay, we'll never know the answer. And the reason is that the Druze religion is, by design, one of the most secret and mysterious religions in the world, and that's by their own claim. This is one of the first components of it, that is that it's a secret religion. And in fact, 30 years ago, really before the rise of the internet, the rest of the world knew very little about the Druze. Of course, today, I mean, let's face it, it's really hard to keep a secret. Uh, and so, this is not the place for a full discussion of the Druze, and I am certainly not qualified to do that. I think very few people are. But we have to talk a little bit about them because this has a big impact on the legacy of El Hakim. So, just some facts. Who are the Druze? Uh, today, the Druze are a minority of between 1 to 2 million people, and the largest segment of those are located in Syria. Now, despite the terrible violence in Syria today, and certainly the worst in the world right now, the Druze and other minorities were spared much of the violence. And this is because Syria's government is dominated by another religious minority, the Alawites. And so their opposition is the majority Sunnis, and so Druze and even Christians get treated better by the regime in, in relative terms. I mean, it's not... It's not a good situation for anyone. Now, probably better known are the 200,000 Druze in Lebanon, where they are a very significant power in the political situation. The Druze community is very tight. Someone is born a Druze, you cannot join the faith, you cannot convert to it, and you cannot marry into it, nor can you leave it. Uh, in, uh, marriage is supposed to be within the community, and although today that's not always the case. Uh, particularly during the Lebanese Civil War in the 1970s and 80s, the Druze militias were very powerful. 
Now, you notice I keep saying Drew's religion. This is a very sensitive point, and I don't want to get into any trouble here. The Druze definitely branched off from Ismaili Shia during this time, and their founder, who is Hamza bin Ali, was El Hakam's chief da'i, or his chief religious advisor. But the Druze have incorporated elements of so many other religions that they are usually referred to, even by Druze themselves, as a religion with Muslim roots. They have many key doctrines which are not accepted in Islam, like reincarnation, for example. Now, having said that, I have a very good friend who is a Druze, and he considers himself a Muslim. If you ask him if he's Muslim, he will say yes. So we have to be careful with this, and largely because so many records and histories of the Druze are secret, uh, there's just a lot we don't know. But anyway, how did this happen with El Hakam? Well, Hamza bin Ali, if you remember, who I just said was the chief da'i in the realm at this time, he began to preach about Al Hakam being divine. Now, specifically, the Druze believe in God taking on human form. In some religions, this is known as an avatar. Uh, and he believed that El Hakam was an example of this. And, of course, it is very hotly disputed over whether El Hakam agreed with this or not. As some scholars think El Hakam believed he was the divine intellect, which was another Druze conception, this connection to God. Now, we have to be fair. El Hakam was already a Shiite imam, so the jump from being a Shiite imam to being a divine intellect or something with divine supernatural properties is not as big as it sounds. This is not like someone on the street corner saying that he's God. In any case, the Druze are named after the preacher Ad-Darazi who founded the faith but whom the Druze now consider a heretic. So you can see how complicated this gets. In any case, many of Ad-Darazi's beliefs are still part of the faith. So sorting out what El Hakam actually believes can be very tricky. In any case, El Hakam never claimed to be Druze, and he always considered himself to be the Ismaili Imam, and the Ismailis today still trace their lineage through him. And even some reports say that El Hakam had Ad-Darazi executed for heresy, but again, we don't know uh, for sure. So you can see the complications. But what's happening here is that we have Al-Hakam who is definitely asserting his power. He's definitely showing him to be the absolute ruler, and he is persecuting all those who disagree with him. And so this leading to a belief that he was divine or sort of semi-divine, well, we can see where this would come about. Well, where this gets even more tricky, if this were not tricky enough, is that in the year 1021, at the age of L30, uh, 36, El Hakim disappeared while riding his donkey in the desert outside of Cairo. Now, it's generally believed that his sister, the powerful Sitmulk, who we mentioned earlier, had him killed. But remember what we've talked about in Shia history of imams disappearing uh, their bodies never being found, and this leading to the belief that they have mysteriously been transported up into heaven or into some supernatural state. This is going to be another case of this. This was only four years after the founding of the Druze faith, and in that time, Al Hakam had a policy, a practice of withdrawing into the desert for long periods of time to meditate, and he had become much more interested in the mystical side of the faith. Uh, this also made him much easier to kill, that he's off in the desert by himself. So during this time, when we have people preaching about the divinity of Al-Hakam, he mysteriously disappears and is never found. So if you're already inclined to believe that, uh, this is really going to support your belief. In any case, after Al-Hakam dies, his son, Al-Dahir, takes over at the age of 16. But in this case, Sitamulk, who is really 
become much stronger, will be the power behind the throne. She had always been a bitter rival of al-Hakam, so she's not going to be very friendly to a group that considers him divine, and she's eager to prove herself to those critics who say she's a a bad Muslim, if not a secret Christian herself. So she goes after the Druze big time. And because of that, because al-Zahir is essentially a puppet of Sitmuluk at this time, um, they refuse to acknowledge him, the Druze refuse to acknowledge him as the Caliph, and so this becomes uh, a justification for continuing the persecution. And this is when the Druze decide to close their faith. Uh, basically, no one is going to come in or out unless you're born into it. So we are not here for a history of the Druze, as I said. They will continue to be important and they will pop up a lot whenever we talk about Syria and Lebanon. And their relations with the rest of Islam is going to have a lot of ups and downs. But our concern is with al-Hakam. We've already seen the harsh measures he took against other religions. But when you combine that with the idea that he may have actually considered himself to be divine, then we get a different picture. So if we believe he, re he encouraged this Druze claim, then we can see where the idea of the mad caliph, who persecuted all others, uh, comes about, and how he was a stain in this otherwise pretty tolerant period of the Fatimids. So during the Fatimid time, there was tolerance of Jews and Christians, except for this one guy who was insane and thought he was God in the flesh. Oh, well, that explains why he did uh, what he did. And this is the dominant view that you're going to find in most Western traditions. And this is the al-Hakam that we find in literature. He actually appears as a villain uh, in a lot of European literature. On the other hand, he could have just been a guy who was trying to assert his rule and assert power during a time of great internal instability and rebellion and division. Cracking down on religions was part of his overall effort to solidify his authority and was not very uncommon at this uh, time in history. And he also purged court officials and people within his own sect. He suppressed Berber tribes, and he competed with the Abbasids, and he did some great public works. And so this is just one part of his attempt to assert his power. And during that time, a very, very turbulent time, some people looked at him, saw him as a div divine savior, and built a sect around him. So those are two different views of al-Hakam. And this is one in which historians are so divided on the point that we may never get an answer. Now, just for what it's worth, my opinion isn't worth a lot on this, but uh, I shouldn't just leave a controversy hanging. I would tend to lean towards the second explanation. I think al-Hakam was a strong ruler, perhaps a, a ruthless ruler, and he was trying to strengthen his hold. But he was probably no more insane than any other caliph in his dynasty was. And the reason I say this is because of the non-religious activities he did in his rule. Okay? We've talked a lot about his relation to other religions, and that's the main thing people say about him. But this really overshadows the fact that he made Cairo the great cultural center that it is. And he did more than any other Fatimid ruler to really put Cairo on the map as the, as the capital of the Middle East. And it's a position it would hold really up until at least the 20th century or the late 20th century. And Cairo would at one point be the largest and most important city in the world. Now he had a definite competition going on with Baghdad. And we can see this in the fact that he established Dar al-Hikmah, the house of wisdom, and if that sounds a lot like Baghdad's, Beit al-Hikmah, that was intentional. The word Dar, like Beit, also means house, but a Dar is a larger and more prestigious house 
than a bait. A dar can be like a palace. This is a word used for like a publishing house, for example. So Dar al-Hikmah became the intellectual center of Cairo and really uh, of the Muslim world with over 100,000 books on all subjects. And it was described as one of the wonders of the world at the time. Although this started out as a library, it was turned into a university soon after. And we have to remember the Fatimids already had Al-Azhar, which is the first real Islamic university, which was in Cairo. So they have Dar al-Hikmah as well. Now part of Dar al-Hikmah is this is where the Ismaili da'is, uh, essentially the preachers, were educated for their missions. But the lectures were open to the public, and people could come from all over to learn there. Okay, so that's a big difference from education today, which is certainly not free and open to the public. Right. Dar al-Hikmah was not just by itself, it was part of the royal palace compound, along with several mosques and the palace. And this really did rival and overshadow uh, the Beit al-Hikmah in Baghdad uh, for a time. Now, unfortunately, when the Fatimids fell, which was not uh, far off, Dar al-Hikmah was seen as one of the Shiite innovations. So thousands of its books were destroyed and it fell into ruins. Uh, interestingly enough, this is not what happened to al-Azhar. Al-Azhar was turned into a Sunni institution and it went on to you know, really continue its fame. So the building is lost today, as is the palace. Now, interestingly, what is left for us is the mosque of Al-Hakam, which is in Old Cairo. Uh, this was in ruins, but it was restored by the Ismailis in the 1980s. And we talked in the last episode that actually the Ismailis today have a very large charitable network, and this is largely because of the Aga Khan, who is one of the richest men in the world, who is now the Ismaili Imam, is, is famous for his charitable works, uh, and his works of preservation uh, throughout the world. In any case, the Ismailis restored the El Hakam Mosque in 1980. And it is today one of the most striking mosques in Cairo. But there's a lot of controversy at the restoration. Uh, basically, they restored it in a very dazzling style, a very dazzling marble uh, that looks very little like the original and looks very little like the other medieval mosques in Cairo. And so, uh, although it's very fancy and nice to see, and it is a big tourist site, a lot of people are upset because it doesn't really reflect the, the historic mosque. In any case, al-Hakam invested a lot in education, particularly of the Da'is, who he sent out all over, all over the realm, really all over the world as he could. Uh, but he had private what they were called wisdom sessions in the palace and these were held at the mosques and part of these were dedicated to teaching the esoteric knowledge of the Ismailis which is a major and controversial part of the sect. Remember their idea is yes there is the Islam that you know and it's all true and there are the Islamic laws and these are true but they largely refer to physical, material, tangible con uh, conduct there is actually this esoteric hidden meaning behind everything and only the imam really knows it and this is where the da'is would go to learn it. So you can see that with this uh, emphasis on wisdom sessions and secret knowledge how the Druze religion would develop during al-Hakam's time. But al-Hakam did a lot. Much of the, the infrastructure of old Islamic Cairo, the classic city, which would you mean go on to be really the center of the Islamic world, was definitely set during the Fatimid time and particularly during al-Hakim's time. And so to look at him just as this religious persecutor is not uh, a complete picture. I mean, al-Hakim actually sent envoys all the way to China. He had diplomatic relations with them, which is interesting considering that the Abbasids are in between those two. So he saw himself as a great world leader. In any case, however we look at al-Hakim, we have to acknowledge that he presided over a golden age in culture not just in the Islamic world, but one of the real golden ages in world history itself. I mean, we rightly celebrate Baghdad of the Abbasids, uh, and we should celebrate 
Cairo of the Fatimids, as well as we celebrate Cordoba in El Andalus, and so on. But it was definitely a time of turmoil. For better or worse, whether it's his fault or not, the Fatimids would go into decline after him, and they were always a minority faith in their own territory anyway. But by the end of the century, the arrival of the Crusaders would really put the finishing touches on the Fatimids, and their empire that they created would be taken over by someone else, that would be Salah Hadin, whom we'll talk about, and eventually the Mamluks. Because of this, because their great empire would become uh, essentially uh, the template upon which a great Sunni empire would be built, you know, they tended to get a reputation at the hands of the Sunnis. As we say, the victors write the history, and history would not be too kind to them. But despite that, it was really the Fatimids, and to a large measure, Al-Hakam, who established Cairo as this great city that would go on to be uh, really the leader of the Muslim world. And so that's our subject for today, Al-Hakam. I thank you for your kind attention, as always. Thank you, please, for your comments and your ratings. We need those ratings if we're to keep on the air and keep this program going. So please take time to to give us a rating. And we hope to see you in the future as we begin to talk about what's going to be a time of great turmoil. Uh, Very shortly, we have the Crusades are about to begin, and this is going to redraw the map of the Middle East and also usher in a new period in Muslim-Christian relations, as you can guess, not a good one, that is going to have an effect even to our present day. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you'll be there. Thank you very much. Shukran jazeelan wa masalam. Thank you all.